work the red lights today. And greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom. I don't know about you, but I am ready after two weeks of introducing the book of Revelation. I am ready to delve into some text, delve into chapter one, and let's hit it. The revelation of Yahusha. I told you I'm not going to mess around this week. I've been chomping at the bit. Thank you. Thank you. I've got to adjust my audio before I go in. There we go. Ah. The revelation of Yahusha Hamashiach, which Yahuwah gave to him to show his servant things which must soon come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his heavenly Malak, angel, to his servant Yochanan John. Better? Better. Splendid. Splendid. So there we go, delving into Revelation chapter 1. I'm excited because I really love being in the text. But I do believe giving that first two weeks of introduction was important because I wanted to set the groundwork for my um, belief system, a lot of ours belief system, but also to recognize the other belief systems out there and why I don't subscribe to them, why I would caution against them or whatnot, just to show that there are different applications. As we enter into chapter 1, verse 1 specifically, I'd like to pull out soon come to pass because this is something that many have struggled with over the millennial. Now, as you saw on the introduction, I think we did a great job, Larry and the guys here, with the, with the screen showing the Revelation coming forth. But the earlier manuscripts of Revelation, they carried a simple title, The Apocalypse of John. And then some would say later, The Apocalypse of John Divine. So what's amazing is the purpose of the Revelation is what? right there. It's to pronounce a blessing on both reader and obedient listener. So we get a blessing. That's the amazing thing. We get a blessing by just reading this book and by hearing, Shema, hearing but obeying. So it's a multiplicit blessing to us. And it is, which excites me, an apocalypse which means it's an unveiling. We're going to see things that we haven't seen before, an apocalypse. And here, Yahweh takes the initiative with us to unveil the mysteries of the last days, to unveil them to mankind when man, mankind finds himself in the midst 
of a very despondent and discouraging world. And that's where I believe that we are. And we need to have unveiled to us the real forces behind the very march up to the end, which brings us to this which shall soon come to pass, to show his servants things which must soon come to pass. Now, I've spoken about this in past teachings. I think it's very important in the days and the age that we live, and you see it with all the shut-up culture out there. And that's the distinction between, oh, that's sacred history and historical truth. Bible believers that believe what is written, we subscribe to historical truth, which is void of emotion. Whereas the world that we live in only listens, they do not subscribe to what is written and documented, and they fall into an emotional trap, which is sacred, high places, sacred history. And if you speak historical truth to somebody that subscribes to sacred history, you find yourself in conflict, and then they will shut you up by calling you the sacred names that they prescribe to. Racist, Nazi, anything to get you to not talk about historical truth. And we live in that world today. We live in that world today. So without, with that being said, last week we have some people on the chat saying, well, I think Matthew's being racist. Let me be clear. Islam is a religion. It's not a race. We can now continue. So... <laughs> Whereas we find that historical truth is a divinely ordered sequencing of events of which that must, which must take place and then that which must shortly come to pass. So Yahusha orders this historical truth. Whereas S.A. Tan manufactures sacred history. And that's the world we live in. Yahusha orders historical truth. S.A. Tan manufactures sacred history. So, that is why we have such a division in our world today. Because Bible believers subscribe to what is written, which is the Bible, but also what is written in history. Non-believers subscribe to what is sacred, their sacred cows that are passed down through oral tradition. So therefore, there is a divide that can only be breached if those who have the sacred cows and the sacred history repent and come to know him who will bring them into historical truth, which is written. Which is why Yahusha, when he confronts 
essay tan and his sacred history about what was written before, Yahusha doesn't recount sacred history. He says, Matthew 4, it is written historical truth and therefore the devil flees. You and I live in that reality, and the book of Revelation will play out in that reality. It's very important that we know that because this is boots on the ground stuff, and it will come up at your work, with your families, and in the world. It's everywhere. So let's look at four things to understand, or four ways better to understand this phrase to show his servants things which must soon come to pass. There's four ways of looking at it. Number one, soon, soon is better understood to mean in a sense of suddenly, it suddenly came upon us or without delay. But it has a clause to it. Once the appointed time arrives. Okay. Are we in that appointed time? You be the judge. That's the first way of looking at this. And I hope as we go through the book of Revelation that I'm going to be able to bring forth different ways of looking at the text and we can decide. It's not that this is the only way, but I will have this one foundational truth with that interpretation. I will never violate the text. But the text will often speak to us in a multifaceted way. Does that make sense? The second way to look at this soon is that John could also be employing the formula that we're all very familiar with, and that's the formula found in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We all know it. One day is with Yahweh as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. There's another way of looking at that soon. Now, the third way to look at this soon could be historically. Historically, for early believers, the end of the present world order, it had already begun. It began the moment that death could not hold him and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. The resurrection of Yahusha began the present world order and would be consummated with his universal recognition. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Yahweh. That's the third way of looking at it. How are we doing in the back, guys, for sound? Good? Sounds good? In the room, too? Because I've got this high-tech stuff, and I'm kind of... Yeah? Is it okay? All right, just checking. The fourth way of looking at this soon is, must soon take place, uh, kind of more in a prophetic sense, more in a prophetic sense, because really... In prophecy, isn't the end always kind of apocalyptically imminent? Well, it certainly is with me. When I read, oh, yes, it's apocalyptically imminent. And it's really chronology doesn't come into, a, into, into fact with this because it's prophecy. The chronological, chronological excuse me, sequencing of things is really secondary to prophets. It's really secondary to the apocalyptic. It's not, it's not primary. So there's another way of looking at the four. So prophecy, which is, for me, I think, 
a way of seeing it in its imminence. And, and you'll see that this perspective is very common through the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Luke chapter 18, verse 7. And shall not Yahweh avenge his elect that cry to him day and night, and yet he is long-suffering over them? I say to you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Another example, I think this one is one of my favorites, is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir to all things. Now, the context of Hebrews chapter 1 is, hey, we're in the last days because he is now resurrected and the death, the grave, Sheol, could not hold him. So that's very, very in line with what we're talking about in that list of things. Another one that's famous, of course, is Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And the Elohim of Shalom shall bruise Esaitan under your feet shortly. And I'm like, shortly? Shortly? What does that mean? The grace of our master Yahushua Messiah will be with you. And then it will appear shortly. So these are the ways of looking at it. And anyway, I can be comforted, you can be comforted, because Yahweh is going to do nothing. He is going to do nothing without, before, revealing it to us anyway, right? So what is the worry? Amos reassures us in the third chapter, in the seventh verse. Surely Yahweh will do nothing, including unveiling and giving us the blessing of this revelation, except he reveal his apocalypse, his secrets, his mysteries, the unveiling unto his servants, the prophets. That's you, that's me. So I have great comfort and take great comfort in those words. So that's it. That's the end. No, I'm kidding. So what's this apocalyptic all about? All about. It really is all about as the prophet Isaiah said, the end is revealed from the beginning. It's all about Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. It is written, And Yaakov, Jacob, called unto his sons, and he said, Gather, gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. What's the book of Revelation about? Yahweh is gathering his people together. It's the ministry of being able to bring people together in the last days so that they can be prepared to receive an overflowing anointing. And we live in a world of division, of scattering and animosity. Sacred history divides. But what is written draws in the faithful, for the just shall live by their faith. Gathering in the household of faith together in the last days is a specific, specific anointing. Now, in biblical prophecy, we find that temporal judgments are regularly expressed against the backdrop of these final eschatological events that pop up. And our apocalyptic view has to be one in which we understand that everything, and I mean everything that Yahweh does, 
by the way of judgment is always understood in the light of final events. And there's four ways now that I want to look at the transmission, the transmission of this book, of how the unveiling happens. There's four ways of transmission. Look at verse 1. The revelation, it is made known by a malach in the Hebrew, an angel to John. Now, the subject or the he is not Yahusha. It's the angel. We need to comprehend now the four stages, there's four, in the transmission to clear up any confusion here. The first stage of transmission is Yahuwah, the Father, transmissions the message to who? Yahusha, the Son. That's the first stage of transmission. The second stage of transmission, now that the Son has it, is the Son transmits it to the angel. And the third stage of transmission, the angel transmits it to John. And then if we're listening, John is going to reveal it to us, his servants. And there's the blessing. Four stages of transmission, the world cobbles it all up wrong together. We just break it down. I love to break things down. That's just the way my brain works. Let's look at verse 2. Now, who bore witness to the word of Yahuwah and the testimony of Yahushua HaMashiach of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and guard those things that are written in it for the time is at hand. So verse 3, look at it. It qualifies the unveiling as more a prophecy, actually, than an apocalyptic. Now, I know I get excited all about the apocalyptic, but the reality here is that the unveiling is more of a prophecy here than the apocalyptic. It's not a literal presentation of future history, but a symbolic portrayal of that which must yet take place, meaning, oh, this is what excites me, Yahweh is going to communicate, he truly is, he is going to communicate his message by means of visions that are symbolic rather than literal. Now that's a shift for me, because I'm a very literal person. Am I not? My wife will, I mean, I'm very literal. It is written. I like structure, and you'll notice when I teach, I often say, oh, we've got four points, we've got six points. That's just the way I learn. I like, I like rules. I like regulations, but I don't like them coming from man. because That's tradition, and that's the laws of men. I like Yahuwah's laws because I would rather, as the prophets say, I would rather be under the judgment and mercy of Yahuwah than under the wrath of the heathen. Remember in the prophecies back in the Tanakh? You've got a choice. Would you rather this? Would you rather that? Or would you rather Yahuwah come and deal with you? It'll be shorter, but it'll be severe. But there's always the hope that he'll be merciful. Uh, I forget the passage in Scripture, but I think it maybe is in Chronicles. Yeah, Chronicles. So, 
Now some people are panicking because I said I'm not being literal, I'm prophetic. No, hold your horses because before you do panic, yes, what they portray does actually exist in actuality, but the vision itself is simply a medium used by Yahuwah to transmit that reality. Does that make sense? Look at verse 4. Yochanan, John, to the seven congregations. In the Restoration True Name Edition, I like the translation better. Yochanan to the seven Israelite congregations which are in Asia. These aren't papal congregations. These aren't Calvary Chapel congregations plastered throughout Europe. These are Israelite, Israelite congregations. These were, in fact, a little bit of history for you, the seven cities that were situated, there was this circular route on which the pilgrims would travel, and this main circular route had seven cities. And, you know, if some of you have maybe gone on a tour of Paul and his missionary journeys and whatnot, or you've gone on to this Ephesus journey, there are pilgrimages and whatnot, what you'll find is that these seven, seven cities were situated on the great circular road that bound together the most populous, wealthy, and influential parts of the province. So that was history for you. And now we get into this infamous, I should say, more, more, more um, infamous just because I think so many times it's misinterpreted. Look what it says here. Grace and peace to you and shalom from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven Ruachim spirits which are before his throne. Now, this is the threefold formula. Who is, who was, and who is to come. But what is its origin? Its origin is in the Torah. In Shemot, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, this comes from the famous Hebrew, Hayah Asher Hayah, meaning Hayah has sent you. And the, if you look back at Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, you'll see this threefold formula. You can turn there if you want. But what we're going to find, the origin of this phrase, is grace and peace proceed from a threefold source that renders authority and judgment where from? The mountain. It's going to point back to the mountain. Exodus 3.14 in the Hebrew, Hayah Asher Hayah, or Hayah has sent you. And if you look at it, it's really Aleph Yah, I am Yah, I am Yah now. Go tell them, Yah has sent me to you. That's the proclamation. That's the threefold formula. And why does it pop up right here in Revelation? Because this is an indictment against Zeus. This is an indictment against Zeus. And that's why it's employed. And this is a deliberate charge and indictment against Zeus and those who'd fallen under his influence and his religion. Because in the Song of the Doves at Dodona, we read of Zeus, Zeus who was, Zeus who is, and Zeus who will be. 
And that, of course, is from historical truth from the doves of Dodona. So John is living within a pagan world and he's indicting those pagans because of what is written in their sacred history, the sacred cows, if you will. Do you see that? So it's a deliberate charge. Now, we come down and it says, and from the seven Ruachim, the seven spirits. Now, the seven spirits, I love to tie back the origin of the apocalyptic to the Bible that precedes it. This seven spirits, of course, comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It's the perfect seven-branch menorah. And you'll remember, of course, Hebrew being read from right to left. The seven Ruachim could also, you could also look at it as the heavenly entourage that has a special ministry and connection with the, la the Lamb. You'll see that heavenly entourage, of course, in Psalm 82, where it's written, Elohim standeth in the congregation of the El, he judgeth among the Elohim. But going back to Isaiah 11, chapter 2, you find the seven Ruachim, of course, from right to left, the center, the center branch of the menorah or the Shemesh is the spirit of Yahuwah. And then you have, of course, wisdom, understanding, counsel, the spirit of Yahuwah. Then you have might, knowledge, and then the fear of Yahuwah. This is the per perfect menorah symbol of our faith, is it not? So, of course, that's where that's pulling from, which I, I, I find absolutely strengthening and fascinating. Let's kick down to verse 5. And from Yahushua HaMashiach, who is the faithful, the Amet, the faithful witness, and the firstborn from the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, this question actually came up last night when we were um, just having some, some fellowship about, well, how, how can Yahushua be the firstborn from the dead when there were all these other people that were resurrected, like Lazarus, about the other saints that came out of the ground? Well, the answer to that question, Yahushua is the firstborn from the dead because death could not hold Yahushua. Lazarus later died. And all of those saints that were resurrected at his crucifixion and went into the city and, and, and manifest themselves, they later died too. Death held them. But death cannot, could not hold Yahushua. Therefore, he was the firstborn, as it said, from the dead. Dead could not hold Yahushua. It still could hold Lazarus. Yahushua interceded. It let go of Lazarus. He walked around for a bit, and later he would have died. Okay, so that answers that. I love the Bible. It never contradicts itself. If there seems to be an apparent contradiction, it's my problem. It's not Yahuwah's problem. We've got to wrestle for the truth. You see, what S.A. Tan offered in return for worship, we saw that in Matthew 4, Yahushua attained through faithful obedience that led unto death, and he was vindicated because death could not hold him. The apocalypse reveals we may be called to that same high calling. You see that in Revelation chapter 5. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look what it says in the continuation of verse 5. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. Verse 6. And he has made us. What has he made us? I'm confused already. I'm not sure whether I should go with a king, Jimmy. 
or the new American standard? Which one is it to be? We must proceed further. The King Jimmy says that he has made us kings, but the new American standard says that he has made us a kingdom. This is, as Trump says, this is huge. Not even sure if that was a joke or... No, okay, okay. Because really, this is very important that we establish. Is, is it talking King Jimmy, kings, or is it talking New American Standard Bible kingdoms? Because our faith, listen, our faith cannot thrive in isolation. Our faith cannot thrive in isolation. It will always stagnate and you will become uninspired. So this individualistic, I'm giving away the answer here, this individualistic, well, I'm a king of my own castle of faith. It's me and Yahushua alone. And you're in isolation and you don't connect with people. That's a kingdom. That's not a kingdom mentality. That's a kingship. I'm king of my own castle mentality. Whereas we find faith thrives when it has a kingdom to be manifest in and it's a plurality of placing people together. But I need to break this down because some people will go, how do you know that? That's just your opinion. Let's have a look, okay? Corporately, we go back to the mountain firstly and foremost and it says that we are a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, And of course, this stresses our book of the covenant calling and the realization in the New Testament that we are that kingdom now. But let's break it down in the Greek. I'll Greek you out for a bit. And it's really the difference between singular, feminine and singular, or as we'll see, what plays forth into the kingship mentality. Because kings, if it was kings, like the King Jimmy says, that would contradict 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, wouldn't it? And worse, it would actually contradict the Malkitzedic Book of the Covenant foundation of Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where it says kingdom. The Bible's not going to contradict itself. But neither Yahweh Elohim or Yahushua Hamashiach has made us to be kings. He hasn't. Yahweh himself is Israel's king. And when Yahushua reigns on the earth, he will be the king over his kingdom. Look what it says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. Yet I, Yahweh, have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And what we find, though, is that Israel had a problem when it comes to kings because we find in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6, it is written, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to Yahuwah, and Yahuwah said to Samuel, Well, okay, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they, they have rejected me, that I should not reign, be a king over them. That's very sad. So the King Jimmy gets it absolutely wrong here. And the New American Standard Bible gets it right on. But I'll explain it even more. We're going to look at this Greek word, baselius. Baselius. 
The Greek word for king is basileus, and it is masculine in gender, and it's singular. The Greek word for king is basileus, it is masculine in gender, and it is singular. Revelation 1, that's where we're at, verse 6, we find kingdom, and it is, in fact, basileian, which is different. Ah, it's kind of the same, but different. It is feminine in gender, meaning all-encompassing. All-encompassing, as in women and seed, which could include men, but it's all-encompassing. That's how it works. It's feminine in gender and singular. So the Greek grammar shows the number of the noun to be singular, therefore kingdom and not kings. So the Greek grammar shows the noun to be feminine, therefore kingdom, not kings. So here's another example where we're going to see this baselia. It's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent for the baselia of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Here, the Greek word kingdom, baselia, is feminine in gender and singular. This causes some, some serious contention. I've been in Bible studies before where people are like, no, it's king. The King Jimmy is right. You've got some modern interpretation. And people are like, no, 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 it's kingdom. It doesn't, you know. So I think it's important to, to examine this before we proceed. Here's another example, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Yahushua, he went about the whole of the, of the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the Baselius. Kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So here, the Greek word of the kingdom is baselius. It's feminine in gender and singular. That's the key to understanding it. Does that make sense? Let's give you another example just because uh, people have, do, do, do really have issues with this. Matthew 5, verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the Baselia, the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the Baselia, kingdom of heaven. So again, here, the Greek word kingdom is Baselia, again, feminine in gender and singular is the kicker to interpreting it properly and the New American, New American Standard, they got it, got it right there. And finally, finally, just to, before we can move on, because I want to make sure we've got no gaps in this theology here. Finally, there is no conjunction, um, conjunction word which would be and, because that, that word that's missing in the Greek would be kai, kai. It's not there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, which, which is how, if it was there, it would allow for the translation to say kings, kai, and priests. But it doesn't. There's kingdom of priests. There's no kai. So that, that's another one that makes me go, yeah, all right. 
Don't you have the, isn't the old Bible that you have in your American standard? It is, yeah? Restoration. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, there's, yeah, 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 see, so yeah, you're saying the Restoration True Name Edition's got kings. That's a problem. Well, here's another one that's a problem, okay? Let's talk about some more problems here. Revelation 5.10, okay? This has got the, same, the very same problem. And he has made us kings and priests to our Elohim, and we shall reign on the earth. Hang on a minute, but if you've got your new American standard handy, it has it correct. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our Elohim, and they will reign upon the earth. So again, New American Standard Bible, boom. Revelation 1, we're golden. Revelation 5, we're golden. King Jimmy and Restoration True Name Edition falls flat right there. All right, I move on. That is why. Once in a while, I get to Greek you out. All right, let's go to verse 7. See, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and those also who pierced him, and all tribes on the earth shall wail because, even so, amen, they amen. So, the two prior apocalyptic texts now are married together to, to form verse 7, and I love this. Yahushua will return in glory, and when he does return in glory, oh, we're not going to have to worry about sacred history or historical truth because history will come to a close, and I will not have to worry anymore, and neither will. What am I going to do with my time? What am I? There won't. We'll be beyond time, won't we? Of course, this is the Daniel motif. This is coming from the marrying of texts here is coming from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Now, this is the kind of thing that I love that keeps me up in the middle of the night is reading a passage and go, this is very familiar to me. I don't know why I spoke French because I needed a change from the Greek. And then I try and find the associating text. Well, I found it, and now I'm telling you, it's, Matthew, it's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. But then we see this again married with another text. Remember, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. We see Zechariah's vision as the end-time inhabitants of Jerusalem. Look unto Yahushua, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for Yahushua as one mourneth for his only son. So John is brilliant here. He starts to marry prior texts beforehand that they haven't even yet got the revelation on, Zechariah 12, 10. He hints at it with Daniel 7, 13, and he draws it all the way into his very audience. And most of them aren't making the connections. We have the advantage that we're thousands of years down the road, and we have had time to ponder these things. But they most probably didn't make the connections. Which brings me to the next point of me greeting you out, which is verse 8. I'll Greek you out first, and then we'll go to the Hebrew. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end, says the Master Yahuwah, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty El Shaddai. So you can see how that's married with Exodus 3.14, correct? We already touched on that, but the Hebrew is much better. I am the Aleph Tav, the beginning and the end. Aleph, of course, the first um, letter, Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew, Aleph Bet. So the Aleph Tav's foundation, of course, married now with Genesis chapter 1, the first seven words in Scripture. And again, that Shemesh, we're going to have the menorah here, and we're going to have that central pillar being Yahusha, which is the spirit of Yahuwah, Isaiah 11, 2, but also the Aleph Tav is the center Shemesh branch of the menorah that holds together the seven congregations through the tribulation. We find this, turn with me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We find the Aleph Tav foundation, of course, is structured in the opening sentence of the Bible, and it's constructed out of the seven Hebrew words, and of course, seven is a number that we are going to see again and again and again and again and again throughout the apocalypse. And the root that holds all of this together, the Shemesh, is Yahusha and his completed redemption over history, which is my security and your security living in this very insecure world. Bereshit bara Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim vet ha-aretz. In the beginning created Elohim, Aleph Tav, the heaven and the earth. There's your Aleph Tav right there. And of course, the rabbinical Jews will skip right over this. And of course, it's been removed from all of our translations, New American Standard and the King Jimmy. This is huge. Because in the very first verse of the Bible, we see a complete heavens and earth created in verse 1, as opposed to those things being created later in the, in the first six days. Because no creative processes takes place in the first six days except beasts and man. Everything else was formed from material that was already created in verse 1. The heavens and the earth were created in the beginning, um, not in the six days. Okay? This is huge. And now we're going to skip into how this Aleph Tav, forget the Alpha and the Omega, Greek and Meow, is going to be all about my emunah, my faith. Of course, Habakkuk, I love Habakkuk. We read Habakkuk this morning with the kids. Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by his faith. And of course, Romans then, boom, just powers that in with Romans. Paul does to the Romans in the 10th chapter and the 17th verse. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing, but not hearing some nonsense down the road or some sacred history. Faith comes by hearing the word of of Yahuwah. And then the writer to the Hebrews in the 11th chapter really just nails it all together. And he says, faith is the substance of things 
What is it? Oh, it's the substance of things that are hoped for, the evidence or the apocalypse, the prophecy that's going to be unveiled. Those things that aren't yet seen, that's, this is our faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is how John was shown the revelation and how John obtained Hebrews 11.1. 1. Read it in your own time. This is how John obtained a good testimony. And this is how you and I will obtain that good testimony too. And that, that really strengthens me. Now, of course, again, going forward with this olive tav, you see this olive tav now moves forward into John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and now you go, well, what word? The shemesh, the olive tav, the center column of the first seven words of the Bible. John is referencing the first seven words of the Bible, three on the right, three on the left, and the word is the shemesh, the servant light or the foundation stone that holds it all together, will hold together all the sevens that you see in the book of Revelation, specifically the seven congregations, the seven spirits. The seven. This is all because he holds it all together. John the revelator, the writer of the fourth gospel, connects back to his previous work here. In the beginning was the Aleph Tav, the Word, and the Aleph Tav, the Word, was with Elohim, and the Aleph Tav was Elohim. If you want to have a chit-chat with the Jehovah Witness and give them some food for thought, this is the way to do it. There you won't make any friends, but you could definitely divide and conquer. Dividing the word and conquering the cults. I'm all about that when one has the opportunity. Except my opportunities in Salem have vastly diminished over the past three months. They pack up their trash and move away. I, it's not working for me. I'm going to have to get some spies to go in masquerading because I have, I've shot all my bullets. The same was in the beginning with Elohim, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Of course, the word is the olive tav. John 1.14, and the olive tav, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, now I'm tying this all back to Zechariah 12.10, John, I believe, made those connections. They shall look on him, Olive Tav, whom they pierce. The Olive Tav actually appears right there in the text of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The, they will look on the Olive Tav, who are they pierced. So at one, at one point in future prophetic history here, the true Jews will awake to who the Olive Tav is in the scrolls. So... Yahusha, of course, for us, we know he is our master. And that master, of course, the master of the Passover, thousands of years before Pilate came on the scene, we find that Passover spoken about in Exodus 12, verse 27. That ye shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children in Egypt, whom he smote, 
Aleph Tav, the Egyptians, Aleph Tav, and delivered our houses, and the people bowed their head and worshipped. So Yahusha is spoken of and called out by the Aleph Tav all the way back at the foreshadowing of the first Passover, which he would then inaugurate and bring to redemption at the second Passover, which, of course, Zechariah has in chapter 12, the Aleph Tav that connects it all together. And John understands this. This is, I mean, just amazing stuff. We're only in chapter 1, and we've only done seven verses. It's going to be amazing. I'm truly blessed. Let's go to verse 8. Okay, verse 8, I love Greeking you out. I get to Greek you out a lot through the book of Revelation, but whenever I get an opportunity, I'll tie it back to the Hebrew. Verse 8, I even got in some, some Arabic last week, which is great, you know. I like to do, have a go at the old Mohammedans whenever one gets the chance. Verse 8, often translated as the Almighty, we find this Greek word, Pantocrator, Pantocrator, which has its Hebrew equivalent, Shaddai, and is often rendered Yahuwah Sebaoth in the Septuagint. Yahuwah Sebaoth in the Septuagint. I think that appears one time in the King James Bible in the New Testament, right? I think we're familiar with that. Look at verse 9. I, John, who also am your Israelite brother and friend in tribulation in the kingdom and endurance of Yahushua HaMashiach, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of Yahweh, for the testimony of Yahushua HaMashiach. And now we'll get down to verse 10. And let's talk about the Sunday church. Not really. Well, a little bit. Let's read it first. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a shofar. I was in church on Sunday morning. No. <laughs> okay. This was very traditional when we were in the church. It's the Lord's Day. Well, that's Sunday. Now, when I came into the Messianic movement, they did, a, did an import from um, Matthew 12. You know, oh, no, no, this is like, this is Shabbat. He's the master of the Shabbat. Okay, I'll take that. That's way better than Sunday. We're all about the Sabbath and Sabbath observance. And no, that doesn't work either. They're both wrong, okay? Sunday church is wrong here in the context of this verse. And so Shabbat. You can't do an import of Matthew 12 with your, with your keeper and your seat seats. I'm not falling for that. I did for a little bit, but I've grown up. So I'll help you out here. Okay. The, the um, Restoration True Name Edition translates it this way. I was in the spirit on the day of Yahuwah. Yeah, that's wrong too. There's a third application there. So we got three and they all bomb. The day of the Lord is Sunday. Wrong. The day of the Lord, import Matthew 12, Messianic move you, movement, it's Shabbat. Wrong. Restoration, true name edition, import the prophecies, the day of consummation, the day of Yahuwah. 
wrong. All three of them wrong. I'll show you why. Let's start with the first assumption, and it is an assumption. Most believers assume the day of the Lord is Sunday. Okay? It's just that, though. It's an assumption. Nowhere does the New Testament refer to Sunday as the Lord's day, unless I missed it, and I don't think I did. Nowhere in the New Testament does it refer to Sunday as the Lord's day. So that tells me there is no scriptural support for that assumption. The Lord's day was already a specific day. I'm giving away it all too fast here because I'm so too excited, but whatever. We'll We'll get to the same place in the end. So I can, you know, I was never one to keep surprises. The Lord's Day was already a specific day of the year of the Roman calendar before Yahushua's death, before his burial, and before his resurrection. It's got nothing to do with Sunday. It's got nothing to do with Shabbat. And it's got nothing to do with the Tanakh's prophecies of the day of the Lord. That's not what it says here. It was the day commemorating Caesar worship. And those that didn't worship Caesar were considered atheist. And the punishment for being atheist was death during the time of this writing under Domitian. He was referred to in Roman documents as our Lord and God. And in 96 of the Common Era, he was such a nutball that he put to death his own cousin for being an atheist. Okay? So what is John referring to? What day is John referring to? The context of leading up to verse 10 speaks about John being what? John who is exiled in the island of Patmos. Why was he exiled? He's communicating about why he was exiled. Good job he wasn't killed, but he was exiled and now he's communicating to us and that's the context of the preceding verses about him being exiled on the island of Patmos during Domitian's reign, a brother companion in tribulation for the word of Elohim and for the testimony of Yahushua the Messiah. Meaning, here's the kicker, John was exiled. He had endured tribulation For his testimony of Yahushua, because under Domitian's rule, once a year, everyone in the empire had to appear before the magistrates in order to burn a pinch of incense to the Godhead Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, and refuse to say Caesar is Lord was reason and punishment by death. John took a stand. He took his stand before on this day, 
the Lord's day and he is now relaying a vision. Historical truth supported by the context of the Bible makes the assumptions of man fall flat on their face. This stuff is the stuff that just keeps me just pumped up. I mean, it really does. Because I fell for all three of them before, okay? So you just hopefully, hopefully you guys out there, I pray, and we have this conversation here oftentimes, people to me. I mean, I'm climbing a ladder. There are people higher up the ladder than me, lower up the ladder, down the ladder. And it's got nothing to do with our authority. It's called the school of hard knocks. And the thing is, we've got to help each other ascend to Peniel. And there's people that help me. And there's, I hope I help others. And the thing is, if we are going down the thicket and we get all the thorns and thickets and briars stinging us, then we hope that the brother and sister behind us doesn't get all the stings because we took them, all right? So I'm hoping you won't have to go down Sunday interpretation of this verse, Shabbat interpretation of this verse, Tanakh prophecies of the Lord's day of this verse, but understand it in its context because it's going to be huge because we are coming to a time when we, like John, will have to make a stand. And it may mean that you will be exiled. But you have to take a stand. That's what John's relaying here. He's not relaying Shabbat or Happy Clappy Sunday or the imminent one day soon approaching day of the Lord. He's saying, you're going to have to take a stand before we even get to the close of history. Be prepared. I took my stand and I got exiled to Patmos. And now, on the day that I took my stand, I'm relaying a prophetic vision to you. Because I remember that day, I would not pinch the incense, and I would not say that Caesar is Lord. I would not do that. And under Domitian's rule, that was treason. That was treason. This does actually fit the context of the early verses, the earlier verses of Revelation, which encourages believers to stand strong even unto death in the face of persecution. And that's really the teaching. This is a day to take a stand. Either Caesar is Lord or Yahushua is Lord. This has absolutely nothing to do with Sunday or Shabbat, but standing for Yahweh in the face of death and persecution. And this is not about John referring to the end time day of the Lord of which the prophets wrote either. That period of history when Yahweh's wrath and judgments will be poured out upon the earth followed by the arrival of Yahushua and the setting up of the messianic kingdom. The day of the Lord, that is not what this is about because he wrote it the Lord's day instead of the day of the Lord. That would make no sense. You see, in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word, Yom Yahuwah, Yom Yahuwah, the day of the Lord, was rendered by the Greek expression, Hemera Curios, Hemera Curios, day of the Lord. If that's what John means, which he doesn't, why would he rearrange the words and use a different form of the Lord's day? Why wouldn't he just keep it the same as the Septuagint? Because he's not talking about that. So, 
I think this add weight, adds weight to the Domitian, Domitian rule of the writing timing of the writing of this book, which we spoke about in the introduction, rather than it being written at the time of Titus, which many of the preterists will say it was written in 70. I'm saying this was written mid to late 90s, Domitian. And this totally supports that, doesn't it? Those are the connections I made. Be that as it may, there's absolutely no reason to believe that this refers to Sunday. That line of thinking is totally foreign to our context. And the Hebraic, this is called the Hebraic, this series, Revelation, the Hebraic book of Revelation. It, of course, is what we're reading about here. That line of Greco-Roman thought didn't sneak in until, of course, later around the Council of Nicaea and then was fully adopted in the 4th century. And here we are. Nobody questions it until now. Let's go to verse 11 and we'll take a sip from our sponsor. Who here in the house has our sponsor? Some people have asked, are they really sponsoring you? I'm like, no. I'm sponsoring them with all my taxes. That's the problem. That's racist. Oh, it's not. It's sparkling water. I didn't even show you the label. Could be French for all you know. Verse 11. I am the Aleph and the Tav, the first and the last. And what you see written in a scroll and send it to the seven Israelite congregations which are in Asia, to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Beth, to Argamoth, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And of course, the order in which the assemblies appear, there's no specific symbolic meaning. Like I said, it's a circular road that was traveled. It is strictly geographical. Verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, or menorah. And in the midst of the seven menorot, one like the Son of Man, clothed with an ephod down to the feet, and wrapped around the chest with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. And his feet were like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was the sound of many streams of water. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven kokavim, stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was as the sun shining in strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And see, I am alive, Leolam Vayed, forever and ever. Amen. And he, and I have the keys of Sheol and of death. Verse 19, write the things that you have seen and the things that are and the things which shall be after this. And here we have, coming into conclusion here, the threefold office of prophet, 
priest and king. Because right here, Yahushua describes himself in terms of pre-existence, death, and resurrection within the threefold prophet of prophet, priest, and king. Number one, recipient of Yahweh's revelation, he is the prophet. And number two, as ruler of the kings of the earth, he is the king. And number three, as wearer of the high priestly garments, he is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this really actually ties in with Deuteronomy chapter 20 um, with the principles um, concerning and governing warfare. If you remember back when we used to teach through the Torah portion, there was the fourfold principle of the principles governing warfare and you could look at that and see its application with Yahusha where a man would not go out to war if he had not yet dedicated his house. Well we know that Yahusha has dedicated his house, the whole house of Israel. And then the second um, factor of Deuteronomy 20, the principles governing warfare, is that the man was able to stay home from going to war if he had not yet planted his vineyard. And we know that the vineyard of Yahweh is Israel, is the vineyard of... And has Yahushua planted the vineyard of Israel? For sure and for certain, all 12 tribes. But we find that that man does not yet go out to war if he has betrothed but not yet married his wife. Yes, Yahushua has betrothed us, but we have not yet been married at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So therefore, Yahushua is what? The suffering servant. But when he fulfills the dedication of his house, done, check. The planting of his is, uh, vineyard, Israel, check, done. Betrothed, check, hasn't yet married us, we're going to find out when that is in the next chapters, won't tell you which one, we'll find out when that is, and once he marries us, guess what, he's no longer going to be that suffering servant, you and I will no longer suffer the indignations that we have to suffer in this world, the persecutions that we have to suffer, he will be the conquering king that goes out to war because there's only other one other restriction and heaven forbid yahusha is not this the only other restriction is for the chicken the coward the wimp says i'm too scared to go out and we know that is not yahusha of course the coward and the faint-hearted we find in revelation 22 those are them outside the gates we know that yahusha of course is that conquering king and it is a robe reaching down to his feet the greek word here is podores podores and it occurs only here in the whole of the new testament yet it is found seven times in the greek translation of the tanakh the lxx and it always denotes the high priest's robe which is an assurance of him as the high priest after the order of Malkit Zedek. Let's finish up with verse 20. 
This is just, uh, I really am enjoying this myself. I hope you guys are. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, the Hebrew word there, kolkavim, kolkavim, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands men or wrote. The seven, seven stars are the seven teaching overseers of the seven Israelite congregations and the seven men or that you saw are the seven Israelite congregations. And there you have it. That is the introduction of the first chapter. In fact, in its summation, let's look at four things that really impacted me. And you may find some other things, I hope, I pray, that impacted you. Remember that soon, the qualifier of soon. What does that mean? Has the appointed time arrived when that soon will unravel before us? In a prophetic sense to me, <laughs> I mean, I'm just being honest, the end is always imminent. <laughs> it is. I'm sorry. Since I came into the fullness of the counsel of his word and understanding the whole of the Bible, I'm like, oh, it is always imminent. It is always imminent. And then it just escalates as society tends to be circling the sinkhole. So I am prepared for sure and for certain. Number two, of course, we find the threefold formula of he who is, he who was, and he who is to come. In the Hebrew, the Hayer, Asher, Hayer. It's Yah who has sent me to you. That is so important. It's formulation coming from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Then Yahweh doesn't want us to be kings of our own castles because that's when people's faith becomes lukewarm. They begin to stagnate. They stay at home. And guess what? They do not find the growth that Yahweh has ordained for each and every one kingdom. We are not kings and priests. We are a kingdom of priests, meaning our faith thrives only in the plurality of placing together. And that is a specific anointing that is given to those that orchestrate it in spite of the easy opt-out clause of, I'm hurt, I'm staying home, which we have all been tempted to do. But that is not the option that we can do in these days. We are a kingdom, and the kingdom thrives through cohabitation at the feasts, the festivals, and Sabbaths of Yahweh. And finally, number four, faith is action. I am an action man. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And it is the evidence of things not yet seen. <laughs> Revelation, apocalypse, prophecy. That is what we are delving into. And it's going to increase our faith. So comments, questions, anybody. And thank you to you guys that have watched this video. Remember, please, if you're in the chat, 
or you are online presently, give us some thumbs up, subscribe to the channel, get the notifications bell. Hit that notifications bell and then when we upload or do something, we'll ping you in the pocket. The comments section is available. Keep it kosher and um, have some great fellowship together. Questions, comments online, yes. Matthew, can you hear me? Okay. Um, let's see. I know some of those. He's got. He's looking at your the guy. He's he's. Um, which camera are we on? Put me on the main camera there. There we go. There we go. There we go. You got me. Okay. Yes, you Question got me. is: What is the best reference that shows all of the locations of the Aleph Tavs? That's a good question. The best, uh, I think there is like an Olive Tav Bible out there. But, but, hang on, hang on a minute. What is it? Did, what's that? Yeah. There's some bad translations out there, and I don't want to mention them because you have to figure that one out. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's something that could be put up in the chat. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, some, there's a couple of bad ones. I've had to re-gift a lot of Bibles over the years. Okay, next question. Where can I direct people for proof text regarding the Lord's Day being for Domitian? Yes, well, one of them is um, in a lot of the, I believe, Josephus and then some of the Roman writings, historical writings. I don't have those right before me. But again, um, you'd, you'd have to do your due diligence on that. But I believe I got that from Josephus. I can't remember the book. I got it in my bookshelf. Which one is the one from Josephus? Antiquities of the Jews, I believe. One of them. I could pull that up for you. Just... It's not right there. These are rough notes. I didn't put, you know, bibliography. Next one. Good questions, though. Okay. Question. I'm, I'm, I'm striking out here. The, as Melchizedek priest, do we have the ability or responsibility to carry out biblical rituals or authorities? Shouldn't uh, priesthood imply ability? Yes, definitely. Ability. What kind of rituals are we talking about? We don't know. Do we know? There's no. Okay. Ritual immersion. Give me some more. You have to speak into the microphone. Ritual immersion. Give us another question. We're not doing too That's hot today. That's it. What about in-house? Do we have any? Guys. What's that? Are we the bride now? We have been betrothed, but we have not yet been married because we are going to be invited in the revelation to the marriage of the Lamb. But most will reject it. Most will reject it because they have been taught to fear it. What is up is down. What is black is white. It's all the great deception. So that's very important. We'll get into that in later chapters 
the marriage supper of the Lamb and to be ready to embrace it when we see it. And there will be particular laid out of when it will come. And at that point, when we accept it, we are ushered in to the supper and outside is when all this stuff is going to go on the nations because they rejected it. Yeah, great stuff. Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah. And next week we'll jump right into Revelation chapter 2. Thank <laughs> you.